welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for being on today's podcast and for supporting this podcast every week, week in and week out. I appreciate you subscribing to this podcast, rating it and sharing it with your friends and colleagues and letting me know what I am doing right and what you would like to see more of this. You can always reach me, as you know, by direct messaging me and follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or through my website, ShadiNabhan.com. Today's podcast is super special because I have the honor of hosting Dr. Robert Califf, who is the current FDA commissioner. He is the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, and he has done that previously under the President Obama's administration, and he has been the commissioner now. He assumed office on February 17, 2022, under a current president, uh, President Biden. Today's podcast is about drug shortages. I have uh, reached out to Dr. Califf, who has agreed and generously giving me some time to discuss the shortages of drugs in the USA and with a specific focus on chemotherapy. Look, uh, it's very difficult to explain to anyone why we would have any type of chemotherapy shortage in the United States of America in 2023. This is not something that we can easily explain. However, we are dealing with this. Uh, Things might ease up for certain drugs and they don't ease up for other drugs, but this is so essential to address. Uh, Some of these chemotherapy agents, as an example, could be life-saving therapies. Uh, if you are using a cisplatin for testicular cancer, or if you are using whatever you know uh, type of therapy in the adjuvant setting, the bottom line is some of these shortages in the chemotherapy drugs could be detrimental. And my goal of this podcast is to better understand what the FDA could do in the short term and the long term to mitigate the issue pertaining to drug shortages that affects all of the healthcare professionals, but most importantly, the patients who are in need of these drugs. And as you will learn on today's podcast, that not all of these drug shortages necessarily are within the chemotherapy uh, realm, but um, being an oncologist, of course, I had to ask about the chemotherapy uh, portion. I hope you will enjoy today's podcast uh, pertaining to uh, drug shortages with Dr. Caleb, the current FDA commissioner. Uh, And I do uh, hope that we are going to do other podcasts with Dr. Caleb about other topics that uh, that are of interest to you uh, that would be answered by the FDA. But today's podcast is focused specifically on drug shortages and why we are dealing with this today in 2023 in the uh, USA. But also we are gonna focus on solutions. What solutions can be done to prevent that from happening again or to mitigate it if we cannot prevent it fully. And if you are in the mood to read a book, don't forget to read Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Please let me know what you think about this book. And if you have time, please review it and rate it on Goodreads as well as on Amazon. Without further ado, Dr. Robert Califf, the current FDA commissioner on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking his career path, 
and drug shortages in the USA. I know a lot of folks who are listening or watching are easily can, you know, find about you by you know, Wikipedia and Google and all that stuff. But I'd like to hear from you uh, a little bit about you, because I think it's fair to say that you you never go to medical school thinking you're going to be the FDA commissioner, right? That's how for did, sure. How did this really happen? Like, how did this really happen that uh, you you are where you are right now? Well, Johnny, I, I appreciate having the chance to be with you and talk about these things. Let me just say, um, I definitely had no thought of being an FDA commissioner. Yeah, I grew up in South Carolina, um, was going to be a clinical psychologist till I worked in the state prison system in South Carolina for two summers and uh, realized that I want to do something that was more um, concrete and tangible. It was you know, I wish uh, people well who are in that line of work. It is really hard work and difficult. So decided to go to medical school. And early on in medical school, I was fell under the influence of a mentor. Now, I know for young people, this is hard to even imagine. But when I came along, there were no computers in medicine. It was all uh, written uh, handwriting. And there were all these jokes about doctors' handwriting. But I had the chance to work with computers early on in medical school and immediately saw the, just it was so obvious what a difference it would make. And that led to a situation where my work was as a cardiologist was at the interface of um, computers and patient care. I was able to make rounds seeing patients at the time. We didn't even know how to treat heart attacks, believe it or not make rounds, uh, enter data in the computers. And I had an information source that almost no one else had at the time. And just as I got started on that, we did figure out how to treat heart attacks. We figured out that blood clots were causing this leading cause of death in the United States, typically sudden death in relatively young men, often cigarette smokers, interestingly. And um, this led to wanting to develop treatments that were effective for the leading cause of death. And because I had access to computing, we became a clinical trial center that coordinating a, a lot of the big trials that developed the treatments for heart attack and unstable angina and heart failure. That inevitably led to interaction not only on a global scale with cardiologists and other kinds of docs and other kinds of clinicians, but also with regulators around the world, including a lot of interaction with the FDA. Uh, my career went on to more of, uh, I'll call it an administrative career um, in academia. That led my kids to look up in the dictionary the definition of the word academic because <laughs> I couldn't figure out. You know, it's pretty easy if your dad's a cardiologist treating heart patients, you can describe that. It turned out the definition they came up with was of theoretical interest, but of no practical importance. That's, a def <laughs> that's one of the definitions of academic. But um, at some point, there were discussions about coming to work at the FDA. I had several interviews in different administrations for um, commissioner, but wasn't offered the job. That was fine. I had a great career. But eventually, I decided to go up as a civil servant um, in 2015 and worked as a deputy commissioner for medical products and tobacco. That was a great year being a, you know, because I had not done government service. I grew up at the time of the Vietnam War. I was not... Um, 
a proponent of the Vietnam War, but many of my classmates served. And I do believe that national service is really important. But then as I was working away, people said, well, you should be commissioner uh, because Peggy Hamburg, who had recruited me to come to the FDA, had told me that she was ready to step down after six years in the job. <clears throat> but it turned out the president had to ask you. So um, I worked away. And one day I got a call saying, tomorrow you're going to brief the president on the error rates and whole genome sequencing. Did you That's say you're too? Did you say you're too busy to take a call from the president? <laughs> so I studied. Uh, well, I ended up studying up that night. Went to the Roosevelt Room next to the Oval Office, and President Obama. People don't know this, but he was he's quite a mathematically oriented person, and he always read everything ahead of time. We had a really fascinating discussion with people like Francis Collins there from the NIH about whole genome sequencing. And then as I was walking out, they said, you've been invited to come to the Oval Office tomorrow, the next day. And uh, President Obama offered me the job, but only after 15 minutes of argument about whether Duke or Carolina are better <laughs> basketball. Uh, we're, uh, he was captain of his high school basketball team, and I was captain of mine, so we had quite a discussion. So I did a... a, a a year as FDA commissioner, then uh, the election happened, and I was out of a job since that's a political appointment. So, so is it is it always the case, uh, Dr. Kellef, that is it? In other words, is it like a term? So you always either four years or eight years, and you know it's going to change, or FDA commissioners can transcend the administration, whether Democrats or Republicans? Yeah. So basically, it's a it's a political appointment by the president. The Senate has to confirm, which is a major hurdle and it's like having a colonoscopy in front of the public when you go through that but it doesn't have to coincide with the terms of the presidents because in, you know in my case uh dr hamburg had served for six years uh, a term and a half and so i was filling in at the end of the administration um and uh, david kessler is an example of someone who served in both democrat and republican administration so any of those combinations are possible, but typically when the administration turns over a new FDA commissioner is appointed, the old one resigns. And that's what I did. And then I went on to have a great time working halftime at Duke University, where most of my career was, and halftime at Alphabet or Google, yeah. uh, the current company for Google. And when the past election occurred, um, you know, it took a while to find an FDA commissioner, and eventually I got a call. I was not planning on coming back. I had a great time in the job, but I, um, you well, know, here did, you are. You're back. <laughs> so now, uh, what can you say when the president calls? You know, at least the way I grew up, you're supposed to respond. Yes. But what what is a what is a day in your life look like? Like what is is it is it you just like meeting after meeting? I mean, what, is it how much of it is really, um, you know, high level stuff? Do you have to deal with politicians or uh, what? What does a day in your life look like? Well, I think there are a lot of doctors that listen to your podcast. Yes. Okay, well, um, I think you can think of the. FDA commissioner is like the AV node of the FDA. The atrium might go in atrial fibrillation and have all these impulses, but the AV node guards the ventricles. And to a large extent, it's a political appointment. 
and um, protects the FDA, which is 18,000 people, only a couple of whom are political appointees. Because remember, one of the most important things about the FDA, and I think a key to America's success is that far and away the lead innovator in medical products, is um, that decisions about individual medical products are made by career civil servants. So people that are full-time at the FDA have no financial conflicts. Their job is to um, protect the safety and um, spark innovation in American industry in a safe way. And um, if you ever open that up to political interference, you know, it just wouldn't work. So a lot of what I do is feel calls from political people and try to protect, not try, to protect the civil service to do its job of making decisions. And hundreds of decisions are made every day about medical products and food, of course, which is over about half of what we do. Very important, and, and we all know nutrition is a key issue. And then we also regulate tobacco. So, um, you know, if you say, what are the two leading causes of death that are reversible in the U.S.? It's uh, hypertension and uh, tobacco. We're going to lose 500,000 Americans this year from tobacco-related illness still today. So we're still, we're still probably doing a much better job than Asia and Europe with that. I think in tobacco, we are. But we still got a ways to go. And of course, now we have more vaping in the U.S. than just about anywhere. So uh, we still got a lot of work to do in that regard. You know, and, and I think you you alluded, I mean, this is not an easy job. It's obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, not only just because it's a it's a politically appointed job, because you, you deal with a lot of um, uh, sensitive topics and it's by nature, you're going to have some people who are happy with the decisions and some people who are unhappy with the decision. I mean, there, there's, you're never going to be able to please everybody. It's just the way it is. Sure, almost everything in FDA is what I call a Goldilocks issue. Not too big, not too small. And yeah. often you can judge whether you're in that right place if both sides are somewhat upset with you. Yeah. Because <laughs> I like that. And, you know, many of the decisions that FDA makes about medical products change fortunes. And so people get upset. And that, that's why I go back to, you know, part of my job is to protect the civil servants because they don't consider the money at all when they make decisions. It's based on the science of whether the company has developed the evidence to show that the benefits outweigh the risks. And it's just not uh, an issue to consider how that impacts the money. But on the outside, the money is impacted. And so people get upset and call me and often will make accusations because they're mad. But, um, you know, I the mission uh, predominates. Um, the public health is really an amazing mission to have. And so I'm uh, happy to do it. So one of the things that I really, I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Obviously, it's uh, I feel sometimes like I'm going to be like a kid in a candy store. But uh, we're going to focus on really an important topic that has been all over the press, as well as, uh, you know, it impacts a lot of Americans. Um, uh, drug shortages uh, with a specific focus on on chemotherapy. This is um 
there's so much out there. I was trying, I was preparing for our meeting today and just reading article after article about drug shortages. I have to tell you, I mean, a lot of people, the public, just if you take a random person walking down the street, it is very difficult to explain to that individual that it's 2023, it's the United States of America, and you cannot get uh, an easy chemotherapy that could be life-saving. So you could imagine that we really need to better understand what happened. So why are we, maybe we'll back up a little bit. Why are we today dealing even with any type of chemotherapy shortage? How did we, how did we get here? Yeah. So I think it's probably best to back up in um, sort of the drug shortages one-on-one. And by the way, Related to our previous discussion, my real love is developing and looking at evidence about benefits and risks of interventions. I had not intended on spending this time around focused on drug shortages, but that's where the problem is, and it's part of the job at FDA. So the primer on drug shortages is to think about three kinds of drug shortages, and we have good examples going on right now. One kind is where um, you just have amazing demand for a drug. And the example there would be the weight loss drugs, where the companies that make them are making a huge profit. They're making as much as they can. It's still not enough. But that's very rare because um, if uh, in the innovator drug space, you know, um, drugs that are on patent, there's a big incentive for companies to have resilient supply chains redundancy in case something goes wrong because they're making a big profit on the drug. So this is very unusual what's going on with the weight loss drugs. Second kind is where you have federal restriction on how much drug can be manufactured because it's a controlled substance. And the example there is um, the stimulants for ADHD and a few other medical conditions. They're Schedule two, which means that there's a high risk of addiction and misuse, but they're also critical for children and adults with ADHD. Uh, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, controls a quota for how much drug can be manufactured. And what we've seen now is an increase in demand for these drugs, which is nothing like what we see with the weight loss drugs, but it's an increase in demand in a setting in which the quota limits the amount made and that's so that's a second kind that's also very rare it's not you know it it but but it's but it's real the vast majority of drug shortages um and this does seem paradoxical are in the inexpensive generic medications they're not a big part of the budget and it's very hard sometimes for people to sort of grasp that we essentially have two industries now in the U.S. when it comes to drugs, the innovator industry, which makes the on-patent drugs that are protected by a patent and therefore command a high price, which enables companies to upfit their manufacturing and create redundancy resilient systems. Then the generic industry is by and large a very low margin um, industry. And um, they've almost completely separated. There were a number of innovator companies that have dissociated themselves from the generic component now. And what's happened is that because the margins on generics are so low, first of all, like a lot of other industries, there's been an exodus from U.S. 
in terms of the manufacturing. And secondly, uh, many of the companies are actually losing money now on the on the generic drugs that they make. And it's very hard to tell a, co a company, you got to make more drug if you're going to lose, and, and they're going to lose money on it. That's even in the case of much of the industry has moved to India. Not all so, of it. So, so the the price of the generic is set, like they cannot increase the price of the generic. That's why they might lose well, money. This gets really complicated, and I think it's the reason it's so hard to explain. In a normal market, right, You let's say it was tennis shoes. If you wanted to sell me a tennis shoe, um, you'd say, I need X dollars plus Y amount for investment in profit. And if I didn't like that, I'd say, no, thanks. But if I wanted tennis shoes, I'd meet right. your price. In this industry, there's not a direct link between what the manufacturers need and what the purchasers are willing to pay because ultimately the purchases are the health systems and pharmacies that we all know. And they got a thousand other things to worry about. And so what they did a while ago was to get together and form what's called GPOs, a group purchasing organizations because the market power. And, and let me just say, I mean, the generic industry is one of the amazing wonders of that America created, right? Because, um, the, 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 the Hatch-Waxman Act um, created the situation where the patent runs out, and now um, anyone who can make the drug and prove that they're making the same drug can enter the generic market with FDA oversight. And then the competition is on price. And because of the way the contracting has ended up, the price has ended up lower than the cost of making the drug in many cases, and the market's not responded well. This has resulted in a situation where often the manufacturers don't update their manufacturing plants the way you would with an innovator drug where you had the profit to do it. And then you end up with FDA inspections that find problems, but the firms are having trouble raising the capital. So to, are there are there routine inspections that need to happen to these plants, let's say once a year or every couple of years, or is it only does it only happen when you suspect something is is going on? Are there surveillance inspections, but because of COVID, um, we fell behind in the surveillance inspections, um, and uh, there are also for cause inspections that occur, and so we can get to the uh, solutions uh, in a minute, but. You sort of get the dynamic now that's going on. We have a market which is failing economically and problems with the manufacturing um, that need to get fixed. And, you know, we think of cancer drugs as expensive, right? Because the innovator cancer drugs are tremendously expensive, and I would say too high. Yeah. But the generic drugs like cisplatin, which is just in shortage, a very important cancer drug, um, the price of that has dropped by more than tenfold over the last five years, which um, has gotten too low. So the FDA obviously cannot force a private company and say you must for, uh, you must manufacture a generic drug. I mean, you can maybe suggest or talk to them, but you cannot say you have to do that. Uh, so that's why all of these, most of the generic drugs are being done ex-US in India and other countries. Uh, I presume, and because the plants had issues, we 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 have the shortage. Are there? I mean, we'll go over some of the solutions, like you said. But 
Is India the only place that is uh, doing the generics now? Or are there other countries where these plants are uh, doing generics? Oh, it's it's uh, it's distributed. Uh, almost all regions now have some amount of generic industry. Europe has some, and we have a fair amount in the U.S. It's just that it's moved more to India than any other place um, in the last few years. Um, for example, the injectable generics, which are much more complicated to make than a generic pill, a large part of that is in the U.S. because it's... Um, you know, it's time limited. Um, but, you know, the shortages are, are in things that a doctor would think, how can that possibly be? Things like sodium chloride or, you know, very simple things that we depend on every day that we think of as commodities. Um, and so you can see where these market forces really need to get straightened out. I also think that some of the shortages, some of the things occurred before COVID, like certain things I believe were COVID related and maybe supply chain affected some of the shortages. But like you alluded to, I believe sodium chloride probably was even before COVID hit. Oh, yeah. I, I think people that work in hospitals and health systems know this, but every hospital and health system has a team that has been dealing with shortages for 15 years. And if you go back and look at reports from the FDA, for 15 years, they all say the same thing that I've just described to you about the market. But there are a whole set of things that um, we're rejuvenating at FDA um, where we can help. We're getting better and better at plugging the holes, as I say, when they occur. Um, we can't prevent the shortages, but as they're occurring, it, we're getting better and better information. We're uh, improving our inspection regime. We're making um, the inspection information transparent so that purchasers can perhaps pay more to the reliable firms. And one thing I want to be really clear about, the drug itself that gets into the U.S., it's very high quality. And I, I think there's a really good analogy to look at here. You know, let's say I've got a 20-year-old car and you've got a brand new car. Both of our cars can pass inspection. That would be like the pills that actually make it into the US. But my car, 20 years old, would be more likely to break down than yours would, at least I hope so, brand new. <laughs> and that is what's going on in the firms, in the, the, the manufacturing plants, um, where there's a higher risk that something will go wrong that will lead to having to shut down the production line and then a shortage um, occurs. Yeah. And so uh, what we want to do is to get these plants to invest so that their manufacturing systems are first rate. And we're working very hard to try to help make that happen. I mean, I would think there there are probably some, um, like when you're faced by this, um, you have certain things you got to do short term because, you know, you just got to deal with the problem as it evolves, especially, I mean, you know, everybody is, um, I mean, these are, uh, some of these could be drug-saving um, uh, chemotherapies. And then you have to think the long-term, you know, what am I going to do? So hopefully we can prevent this from happening in the future. Uh, in the short term, is there anything that you could do? I mean, I was reading, uh, obviously, the article uh, where I believe the FDA inspection was in November 2022, when uh, for Intas, uh, the plant in, in India, where some of these um, uh, issues were discovered. But in the short term, I mean, you know, physicians were rationing care, trying to decide how much can they drop the chemotherapy dosage without compromising uh, output. 
how involved are you, I guess, in suggesting what physicians should do in the short term as you think of the big picture for the long term? Yeah, you know, our role is less in suggesting what physicians should do, should do and more in working really, really hard with all the companies that we can find who can contribute to fixing the problem. And in fact, for the last decade, every year, we prevented more than 200 shortages that were impending as we heard about them and got some advanced warning. And then there are 30 or 40 per year that happen anyway. And just in the example you gave about the, the chemotherapy, for example, we found a firm in China that makes cisplatin that was not importing to the U.S., exporting their drug to the U.S., and we did emergency evaluation and testing of all the drug that comes in, and they're now helping to fix the problem. But that is routine for us. We spend a lot of time scrounging around, finding potential um, companies that are not currently in the market. You know, the generic industry, people come in and out of the market, so it may be also a company that was making the drug that stopped that production line, and we can talk to them and get them to do it. The professional side of the prescribing, we do work with professional societies like ASCO in the case of cancer and also with the patient advocacy groups, but we don't regulate the practice of medicine, as you well know, and uh, we shouldn't. So there's a large professional responsibility there that, um, for example, what drugs can you use instead of the ones that are in shortage? That requires clinical judgment in we can provide information, but we can't regulate medical practice. You mentioned something about uh, the price of the generics obviously being very cheap. So the profit margin for some of these companies is low. That might be a disincentive for them to, to, to be involved in this. Are you involved in, for example, in suggesting they can increase the price of generics or at least they're a little bit more incentivized that they can make money or is this is completely their decision based on market forces? <laughs> well, it is their decision. Um, right. But I, I'll say, you know, Congress and uh, the White House are very interested in fixing this problem. And I'm glad after 15 years or more, it's time that we did something about it uh, to fix the underlying issues. But in the meanwhile, um, you know, there's an example called Civica of a not-for-profit um, dis distributing company that a bunch of hospitals have formed. And what they do is they require in their contracts that they give a company uh, a contract for six months reserve to keep on hand of a drug. So if there is a problem, there's reserve on hand. And they also um, guarantee a longer-term contract and a somewhat higher um, price for those firms that show higher quality. So this is not-for-profit consortium, and we're encouraging all of the health systems that we can find to look carefully at what you're telling your group purchasing organizations. One way of looking at it is, if you said, what's a high-quality health system? Well, it would not be one that didn't have a system in place to supply cisplatin, for example, to patients with ovarian cancer. And so if you want to assure that supply is there, look carefully at how you're doing your contracting. Now, you know, that's asking a lot in the midst of so many things the health systems are concerned with. But so we can suggest things like that, but we can't require them. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something about having a reserve uh, for like, you know, six months or so. I mean, 
that made me think are there opportunity to are there opportunities to think about i don't know like 20 30 drugs out there that you need to stockpile and just i don't know how we do this or manufacture them here i'm trying to think of the reserve and just blow it up on steroids a little bit to make it more for more drugs and for longer time well, you're, you're thinking uh, the right way, in my opinion. And remember that for um, pandemics, we have a national stockpile. So it wouldn't be um, something that's totally unheard of. But the, one of the issues is you could say, let's make a list of 30 drugs. And sure enough, the next one that comes into short. 31, number 31. Yeah. yeah. No. And it's hard to define what a essential drug is, because if you have a disease that's not being treated, that's pretty... You know, you would think like Adderall, you know, for ADHD, that's not a directly life-saving drug, but it's pretty essential if your kid's having trouble in school and, and needs access to it. So I think it's less a matter of the essential list, although we do have an essential list, and you'll hear much more about this. It's sort of like the top priority. But I think for all the drugs that have a useful medical purpose, um, we need to get away from... Um, just-in-time supply chain thinking and more into resilient supply chains. Resiliency includes some redundancy, that is buying from more than one uh, manufacturer, but also giving uh, contracts that give companies enough assurance that they can attract investors and keep their technology and systems up to date. You mentioned the essential uh, drugs. I, I'm actually interested. So how how do you um, how do you come up with the list? Whether it's 30, 40, or 50, do you um, does the FDA, for example, have a like an advisory council say, give us the top 40 drugs we should? Because it's it's hard to to your point. It's hard to decide what are these drugs. You could always think. Every specialty might have a different drug. So you have, and you can't really put everything on that essential list. So you have to come up with the list. How do you do that? Well, right now there's more than one list because there's more than one purpose. And, you know, one of the main areas where this happens is in pandemic preparedness. So there's a group called um, ASPR within Health and Human Services that deals with um, pandemic preparedness. And we're, we're working across federal government to come up with a list that's vetted by interaction with the key professional groups and societies. But again, I don't want anyone to think that that's the only focus. This is really an issue. We did a calculation. There are roughly 140,000 drugs, if you take the different dosage forms and packaging types of all the different drugs. And so... Um, is not something where 30 or 40 is going to fix it. It's got to be a change in the way practice is done. The good news here is we're talking about the inexpensive generics. And again, I can't stress that enough. So this is not a huge budget item compared to other things. It's just a matter of getting the market right. What other solutions you can share with listeners and viewers that they may not be aware of? I do think... Um, continued professional awareness of um, the relative effectiveness, uh, appropriate use. You know, we had a shortage of amoxicillin when we had the triple-demic over the winter. Prescribing antibiotics is, you know, a perpetual issue. Um, we should prescribe when it's needed. When it comes to the ADHD drugs where there's a shortage now, question of what's the appropriate 
uh, diagnostic criteria for prescribing is a very important one. We, we need to preserve the drug for the people that need it the most, in other words. In terms of the general stuff, I think I've, I've gone over it. We are working hard to get better information so that we can um, prevent an impending shortage and deal with the shortages that we have. But ultimately, the most important thing is to get um, the market right, because we're talking about drugs that someone has already um, invented, um, studied, patented, distributed for eight to 13 years. And now the um, generic companies need to make a copy of it, basically. Yeah. And so we know how to do that. It's a, And there are plenty of good people in the industry. We just need to get the the market right. When you talk, uh, when you talk to uh, physicians in the field or some of your colleagues who are not in the FDA, not in uh, in the regulatory thing, how how much do you think they're aware of the kind of the intricacies or the dynamics of why this happened? Because obviously, you know, everybody appropriately they get angry because they got patients to deal with. But how do you, do you think they understand? Because I'm learning a lot just talking to you into how we actually got here. And I don't think I'm alone. I think not a lot of people really understand the dynamics. Uh, what, what has been your experience in talking to colleagues or, or people outside of the FDA? Sure. I, I um, Like I say, I didn't plan on being a supply chain expert. <laughs> well, not you are now. Of my greatest um, interest and intellectual interest, but I've learned a lot about it in I I think, um, you know, I was a busy clinician for 35 years, and I don't think doctors and nurses, by and large, should have to think about the details here. And I understand why they would get angry. They would expect the system to work. Um, you probably, in other pa- podcasts, are dealing with multiple areas where the American health system is not delivering yeah. right now. And so frustration of all these things together is a lot. I do think it's pretty explainable, though, and I think we need to do a better job, A, of explaining why this is happening, because a simple set of diagrams will show it, and B, reassuring people that the pills they're actually getting actually are the real thing, and they actually work. And I I think we have a tremendous um, set of PowerPoint slides, the old-fashioned way that um, we just came up with, which I think will help in that regard. I have to say one of the things I'm, I'm, I learned as I'm talking to you is uh, your anticipation of potential drug shortages and the fact that you're able to prevent some of these from happening. I actually wasn't aware that you get these warning signals and signs early enough that you're able to intervene. That is very important. I mean, people probably don't realize that you prevented so many and you know we're dealing with important ones, but I, I do think that's critical to share. Right. And we have, you know, over the years, we've helped Congress see their need to pass some laws to give us access to critical information. And so there's a requirement if a firm knows that its manufacturing line is going to go down, that they notify us as soon as they know. And then we can go to work because normally these firms are competing, right? They're not collaborating. That's the nature of um, for-profit business. But when one firm goes down, then we can talk to all the others and say, you know, you need to rev up your production line. And that, that's hundreds of times per year or something like that um, is happening. But I would also say the industry has fought us every step of the way. Um, it's not, you know, unusual in America that people don't like to be regulated. 
and they would consider this information proprietary, but we really need it for the public health. And there's some areas where we need help to go a little bit, a little bit further. Like during the triple-demic, right, there were projections that said there's going to be a lot of flu, RSV, and COVID in the year, and yet the industry fell way short of what it needed to produce to meet those projections. So being notified in every good company does projections based on a set of models that they use. So they, we hope they'll have to notify us when they see a, a shortage due to increased demand also. That's one example. Well, um, I know that you have a very busy schedule and I would love, there's so much we can talk about other topics as well, but we'll, we'll save that hopefully for future podcasts where you can come in and, and talk to uh, my viewers and listeners. But I can't let you go without you sharing with us maybe something that was really surprising to you in that, you know, you always, when you interview for the job and you start the job, you have a particular picture of that job. Um, anything that uh, was a little bit surprising to you that you did not expect, uh, you know, the good or the bad, anything you can share uh, with us in terms of something that surprised you in your role that you were not expecting, aside from coming on my podcast, that doesn't count. <laughs> I, you know, the second time around, I, 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 uh, can't really say um, that there were many sort of general surprises. I did not expect for there to be a major recall of infant formula the day I was confirmed the second time around. It really consumed me. Uh, it's another thing. I'm not a. I was not a supply chain expert, especially about something like infant formula. But I immediately had to become an expert. But the you know the everyday positive surprising thing is the people that work at FDA. There is no reason to work here other than being enthusiastic about the public health mission, because as you pointed out, you get sort of get beat up publicly every day. People are, you know, are upset when things don't go well and you get blamed. There's a real spirit here of trying to do the right thing. And I think if you look at the vaccines through the pandemic and the antivirals and so many other areas, uh, it's an inspiring place to work. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. And I really look forward to having you in future conversations. You bet. Take care. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being uh, supportive of Healthcare Unfiltered. Special thanks, Dr. Robert Califf, for being on today's podcast and for spending with me 45 minutes talking about all things pertaining to drug shortages and what is currently being done from the FDA standpoint and what could be done in the future. Don't forget to let me know what you think about this podcast and uh, other podcasts. And I think um, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can rate the podcast and uh, you can write a brief review you also can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at Chadi Naban and on Instagram, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you uh, being part of the Healthcare Unfiltered family. And if you want the Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt, I'm more than happy to send you one as long as you are a loyal listener and you drop me a direct message on my Twitter feed. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Nelson Mandela. 
It is better to lead from behind and to put others in front, especially when you celebrate victory when nice things occur. You take the front line when there is danger, then people will appreciate your leadership. Until next time, take care.